0: with your host Andrew Donaldson this is herd tell
1: ah welcome back to herd tell okay Somebody we'd love to talk to because he's insightful, he's smart, he brings good perspective on things. Joshua Crawford back on the program, another one of our great Young Voices contributors. He's the director of criminal justice initiatives at the Georgia Center of Opportunity. And he's one of these lawyer fellows. But for the purposes of this conversation, we will not hold that against him. How are you, sir? Good I'm to see doing you again. well, and I appreciate that. No problem. Here's what I'd like to do, because we've talked to you before. I think we need to go a little big picture on this stuff because when it comes to things like crime, when it comes to things like criminal justice, when it comes to things like um, recidivism, we tend to take our pet project and talk about that or we talk about a breaking news headline and we talk about that and we don't weave everything together into the one big quilt of making things better. So I want to start with this, though. When we talk about the justice system and especially the incarceration system, it's supposed to be reformative, and it's not. Mm-hmm. How much of a piece of what we're seeing in our society when it comes to things like criminal justice is that that we don't seem to be really reforming criminals. We seem to have a criminal justice system that makes more criminals than it prevents. How big a piece of the story is that?
0: Yeah, so as it relates to uh, the number of people who end up reoffending after release, it's a huge part of the, the piece. When you look at... 10-year uh, reviews of individuals who've been released from the criminal justice system about eight and ten have committed a new offense over that 10-year period so that's a 80 percent failure rate uh it's it's a, not a success rate it's a failure rate really and so part of the look the criminal justice system exists for two reasons the first reason is to apprehend prosecute and remove from civil society those people who are preying on the vulnerable Right, that's that's its first goal. Its second goal is, to the extent possible, to reduce crime. And so, when you're talking about successfully re-entering people into civil society, it's a big part of that second question, and one that we really do a poor job of.
1: Yeah, Joshua Crawford joining us. We've got all the data in the world. You were writing about this in Real Clear Policy, and we'll link to it. the The formula for somebody who has criminal stuff on their record. Stable home environment, stable work environment equals success. That's the that's the formula. It's inarguable. Yep. But getting into work and getting a stable home situation for these folks after they have some kind of criminal justice issue, whether it's full-blown incarceration or probation or whatever, even juvie offenders, yep. we see this as they enter adulthood. Those are the barriers. That's mm-hmm. the data. Well, we know what it needs, and we know what the stigmas are, and we know what the problem is. Why are we hitting such a brick wall and trying to punch through that? Yeah, one of the major
0: problems is that we do a tremendous amount of programming in prisons that teach technical skills. So you can uh, further your education, you can become a licensed barber, you can become... Uh, you know, learn various skills for various traits. And all of that stuff is valuable and good, especially when you talk about uh, engaging in the workforce. But what we do a really bad job of is a lot of those sort of life skill type things. So the, the things that bring people to prison are the same things that prevent them from forming meaningful relationships and from uh, existing in, in stable work environments. Because uh, if you can't show up for work on time, If you can't pass a drug test, if you can't solve a dispute without that dispute turning physical, then you're not going to last very long in the workforce and you're not going to maintain very many relationships, uh, regardless of the technical skills that you may have. And so one of the things that uh, some of the more recent research has focused on is how do you improve those sort of soft skill type things to help people more meaningfully reintegrate in a civil society.
1: Yeah, Joshua Crawford joining us. You just hit on something really important that doesn't get talked enough about. When you're in the system, and I'm going to use that broadly, not just incarceration, but just, you know, the fine system, the court system, the way you sit through pretrial confinement, all of these things. Everybody has, and rightfully so, concerns about violent crime. You talk about it all the time. You've been writing about it. We're going to link to some of your writing about violent crime. Talk about this piece of it. You just mentioned it. We have nonviolent offenders going into the system. And they come out violent offenders because of what they undergo in the system. And it's not excusing them completely or making it like they don't have some responsibility for that. But it's just very clear in the data that we're creating violent criminals that were otherwise not violent people because of the way the system works. How do we address that? So here's one of the really
0: interesting things that is currently uh, somewhat debated among uh, criminal justice professionals, academic criminologists and so on and so forth is you take a guy who let's say he was a high risk offender uh, when he went in and he's got a stellar record while he's incarcerated. He's not getting in fights. He's not giving staff a hard time. He's not smuggling in contraband. He's doing pretty well. And then he gets back out into the streets uh, after he's released and he's rearrested pretty quickly. Well, what happened? The sort of canned answer for most of, of the, the time that people have looked at this is to say, like, well, the environment is criminogenic, right? He went back out in the same environment that he came into, and so it was really tough for him, et cetera, et cetera. Well, that kind of falls apart when you think about it a little bit past stage one, which is to say this when someone is incarcerated, 100% of their peer group are also criminals, right? And that's sort of a crude way to say it, but it's true. Uh, You're talking about a a population where the overwhelming majority of people who are there uh, have, have pled or been found guilty to some sort of criminal offense. And yet despite that environment, many people still are able to do very well. And it's because of the structure and the supervision and the incentive to get out and all of this kind of stuff that people can behave in the short term. But how can you transition that to, making sure people are successful on the back end. And one of the things that seems to be really critical is making sure that the staff of the programming staff that you're working with inside the facility are communicating with any sort of parole staff that you have once you get out. So there's that sort of continuum of care that we talk about in healthcare and in drug treatment, applying that to the the release process from jail or prison has been demonstrated to have some better outcomes.
1: Yeah. Joshua Crawford joining us. There you go. Another problem. This is why I talk about this is, this is a holistic thing if you're going to try to deal with this because every tentacle of this has another problem, right? You just talked about prison staffing and correctional staffing. Yeah. These are super hard jobs with abysmal pay and yep. really hard hours. Yep. These are not high level jobs where people go and seek them out. We're not recruiting our best people for these jobs And yet you just mentioned it. These are jobs that are critically important on a human level to human beings that are being dealt with in a human way. How do we fix that? Because that seems to be a core alloy on what's coming out of our prison system. And this is not knocking the people that already work there. Mm -hmm. It's just you, it is what it is. You've got to have better staff to have better prisons. And I don't see that coming anywhere on the horizon. Is that a fair way to assess it?
0: Yeah, it it is a huge problem. I mean, the... The recruitment and retention crisis that law enforcement is facing right now gets a lot of attention, but it's it's equally severe as it relates to corrections officials. Um, part of that answer is going to have to be uh, better pay for those positions um, in sort of the age of inflation and uh, the $15 minimum wage everywhere. Uh, there are jobs that are competing with talent for, for those positions that you wouldn't necessarily think of, right? If you can work at Home Depot and make comparable pay to working in a prison facility, you're going to work at Home Depot 10 times out of 10. So that's part of it part of it is is adequately training staff and making sure that they are able to thrive in that environment and do well and then part of it is um, changing up the actual infrastructure of the prison right Um, a lot of the prisons in this country are built to be directly supervised by individuals and when that's the case then you need a lot of staff to supervise uh, a lot of people The newer facilities are sort of built to be supervised by a combination of technology and staff. And so you can supervise more people with fewer people. You can be more particular in the people that you recruit into the facility. And so um, some of those technological advancements and changes may uh, alleviate some of these problems, and that's the benefit to sort of market forces and innovation and technology.
1: Yeah, Joshua Crawford joining us. Let's talk market forces for a second. If in the abstract, we have economists on the show all the time, because I don't know a lot about economy, and I'm really bad at math. So I get economists on, like you. You're a lawyer. I get you on because you're an expert on this. We talk to economists all the time. If I told one of them that we could put a 500,000-strong workforce into a state, they would just lose their minds with giddiness, because that would be a great game-changer for them. Yeah, You talk about this, though. In the state of Georgia, there's 500,000 people under the state supervision right now. Right. There's another half million or so with a felony on the record. 12% of the adult population that could be working in the state of right. Georgia has a felony, which limits their working ability. Right. You can't tell me if you got some reform there and got even a even if you got 20, 30, 10% of those folks working. That would show up economically in a positive way, not to mention what it would do for their own lives and their own families. Yeah. Why don't we ever look at it that way?
0: So part of it, and, and you know, you talked about this from the outset, is that there are so many moving parts here that you have to be somewhat particular in what you're talking about. Um, many of those individuals that you just talked about are violent or sexual offenders. Some of them are recidivist property offenders that that reoffend almost immediately after release. But a very large percentage of them are people who want to meaningfully re-enter civil society. And so how can you create structures that incentivize folks to do that. And still the public has confidence that they're not going to be uh, served at some restaurant by a child murderer who you know, got some lenient sentence, right? And so the, the particulars and the nuance matter a tremendous amount, but as it relates to that population of low-level property offenders, low-level drug offenders who have spent a period of time crime-free, there is absolutely no reason to not do everything we can to meaningfully reintegrate those folks into civil society, because it means fewer victims, it means more economic growth, it means better labor force participation rates, and so we can we can do both, and, and you mentioned this, I write a lot about violent crime, I write a lot about gang violence, those are things that we ought to be very tough on, those are things that we ought to take very seriously, but at the same time, we ought to be able to say that, hey, there's this population of folks out here who want to work, and it's the system that is preventing them from working, uh, once
1: they demonstrate seriousness about reentering society, then we ought to get serious, too. Yeah. Joshua Crawford, join us. Put your lawyer hat on for just a second, though, because let's let's be grown folks here. Mm-hmm. There, There's liability issues there and there's parsing yep. out issues and employers already have a hard enough time parsing through who's going to be a good employee and not, let alone parsing through a criminal record and psychological evals and these sort of things where's something to work on that? Is it, do we need different classifications for felonies? Like you just said, like not all, like, you know, uh, a bank guy does a form wrong, winds up with a felony because he, you know, misreported something is not somebody that killed somebody, you know, there's different kinds of, do we need some nomenclature change? Do we need some regulatory reform where maybe employers get a little bit of liability protection for taking these kind of folks on? Is there some things, you know, just, you know, not even big laws, but like state legislation levels kind of regulatory reforms to kind of open some of these doors up a little bit. Is that a way to address some of these things? Yeah, the liability protections for second chance
0: employers are becoming more popular around the country. So are occupational licensing reforms that uh, in many jurisdictions uh, simply prohibited felons from acquiring a license. Uh, Oftentimes that's being replaced by a structure that says that there must be some nexus between the felony committed and the license sought. In other words, if you've got a drug conviction and you want to be a barber, there's there's no relationship between the two. But if you've got a fraud conviction and you want to be an accountant or a financial advisor, then maybe there is some nexus that that uh, the licensing board can take into consideration. And so, again, injecting some nuance where there hasn't been before uh, can really improve that, whether it be the, the liability protections or some of these occupational licenses changes.
1: Yeah, I mentioned nomenclature there. Talk about that for just a second, for folks, because most people just hear, oh, felony conviction. Yeah. Is there a way there that we need to kind of change our own language when we're discussing these things? When we talk about, well, convict, inmate, prior offender, uh, felony, not felony. People don't know classifications of felonies for the large part. Give us some nomenclature stuff when we're just discussing this, like on our own social media or discussing it or even in a policy situation that we should probably be talking about it a little bit differently. So we're advancing the ball, not just rehashing terms that don't really have a meaning to it other than being a a negative to the folks involved.
0: Yeah, unfortunately, the the deeper you look at that, the more complex it gets. Right. So you'll hear people talk about nonviolent felonies sometimes or violent felonies, and those things typically have a definition in statute. Here in Kentucky and in a lot of places, uh, attempted murder is technically a nonviolent felony. So it's even uh, unfair. If you say this person's committed a nonviolent felony, they may have committed an attempted murder. Um, And so it's it's quite complex that way. Um, There have been attempts in the past to sort of move away from all categorization like that. I think that's a mistake too, because I think what it does is it no longer. Uh, holds people accountable uh, and, and attempts to sort of uh, not acknowledge the the past or past behavior. Uh, and oftentimes what leads to success for people in terms of reentering is to not only come to terms with their prior actions, but to sort of accept uh, the the wrong nature of those prior actions and to to want to do better, right? Uh, a lot of the folks that I work with are people that have been in jail or prison before, and the ones who are most successful at, at Uh, Finding meaning outside of prison are those who look back at what they did and say, like, I was I was wrong for doing that. Now, that gives us no guidance on whether that should be a five year sentence or a probation sentence or whatnot. Um, But you're primarily talking about people who in sober moments are able to recognize the wrong of what they did.
1: Yeah. Joshua Crawford. I want to go back to something you wrote a little while back. You wrote about Chicago Mm -hmm. um, and you were talking about violent crime. Look, Chicago's become the bloody shirt for the right when it comes to violent crime. It just is. That's the one they always go to. Chicago yeah. also has some ingrained, embedded problems. Like, every city has its own little things. Chicago's got some embed things that make it unique to everything else. I don't find it super helpful for us to just keep yelling, Well, look at the murder rate in Chicago, because that doesn't really do anything. Right. You did more than that. You dug into it. You went through the numbers. This is another one of those things like how we've talked about this, I think, is perpetuating the problem. What's a better way to talk about when somebody goes, oh, look, you know, remember back during the war on terror, but it's like, oh, well, more people die in Chicago than they do in Iraq, which wasn't a fair comparison. But you heard this kind of nonsense. Yeah. What's a better way to discuss something like Chicago? Because there's lessons to be learned there if we do it in a productive way. Right. Yeah, so
0: Chicago is somewhat unique uh, in that it has a very long history of an ingrained gang culture in some of its neighborhoods. It's like Los Angeles that way. There are a number of cities, especially large cities, that have just had uh, hierarchical gang structures for longer periods of time. And there are consequences that come from that uh, versus a city like Louisville or Milwaukee, where those structures are relatively new and still somewhat disorganized uh, and smaller. So there are some unique problems there. But one of the things that I never do is uh, I try never to say high crime neighborhood. Uh, And part of the reason I try to never say that is because there is no neighborhood in the United States of America, in any city, in which the majority of residents are out committing crimes, especially not violent or serious crimes. In every city in the country and in every neighborhood in that city uh, where there are higher rates of uh, violent crime, you're talking about a very small number of people who are very active and making like, miserable for the overwhelming majority of people who live in that neighborhood. Um, And when you start to think about things like this, you realize that it's not a territory to be occupied by law enforcement uh, and uh, where there need to be large numbers of arrests, but there are small numbers of networks and groups that need to be disrupted, in some cases, arrested, incarcerated for long periods of time. Uh, But the primary beneficiary of that should be the law-abiding citizens in that neighborhood, which are the overwhelming majority of residents in all of those neighborhoods.
1: Yeah, Joshua Crawford joining us. All right, let's go to one of the nuts of all these problems. Whether it's you know criminal recidivism rates, whether it's violent crimes on the streets, whether it's corruption, whatever, folks holding their local and city and state and federal government accountable is yeah. kind of the linchpin to all this stuff. Mm-hmm. They tend to demand attention on this stuff when crime is high or when there's a high profile thing or there's a police shooting or there's a crime wave or a terrorist attack and then this stuff falls out of the news and nobody pays attention to it yeah what's the baby steps the stuff they should be doing between the headlines for folks that really care about their community because again almost every city county whatever your municipality is they have some sort of public interest groups that the police have to go and sit in front of you and you, they have to take public questions, whether it's a city council, county commission, whatever. A lot of cities now have various groups where the police are responsive to the community. What do they do about stuff like that to start advancing the ball a little bit instead of just chasing headlines on social media and yelling at the TV?
0: Yeah, I think that last part is key. And I think it relates to a lot of that stuff, which is to first and foremost, understand the actual desires of the community that you are attempting to help right Uh, there are a lot of to to be frank white suburbanites who uh, advocate on behalf of uh, black urban communities with high rates of crime or high rates of negative interactions with law enforcement and sort of pretend to know what that community wants if you don't actually know what that community wants then you ought to find out what that community wants before taking some sort of uh attempt to to rectify the problem as you see it Um, but the other thing is to to understand that what most people want is the same across the board. Most people want safe streets and, and safe communities. They want policing done in a transparent and ethical way, but they want the, the problem children, if you will, removed from the neighborhood. They want other people largely left alone. They want to have positive interactions with law enforcement. And so understanding and, and talking about these things uh, when crime is not going up, Part of the problem that we're facing right now is the United States experienced 23 years of sustained crime declines, both violent and property crime for 23 years. And what happened was a lot of people kind of, you know, brushed their hands off and said, well, we figured this out. Uh, we, can, we can clean our hands and, and go worry about something else. And when the eye was taken off the ball, all of a sudden things started to get worse and some really bad ideas started to gain some, some headwind. Um, And so now I think this time period sort of serves as a reminder to folks that uh, like literally all other areas of public policy, be it tax or education or otherwise, uh, this is not an area that we are ever going to figure out and walk away from and and be able to not care about that. There needs to be constant evaluation, constant innovation, and uh, we need to constantly be trying to get better.
1: Yeah, Joshua Crawford. It's cyclical. And we can look back through, you know, the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, economic growth and crime have an inverse relationship with each other. In a lot of cases, there's things like this. There is a cycle to this stuff. Where do you see this going in the next few years? We're getting ready to have a presidential election cycle. I know everybody's tired because we just did midterms, but let's be grown, folks. Yeah. We're going to have an election cycle. Crime made a difference in the midterms. We've got the data now. Voters were thinking about that along with the economy and other things. So I suspect we're going to hear a lot about crime for the next two years running into the next election cycle. How do we parse out the noise of what is just, like you said, people just yelling about all those that bad crime and fear-mongering and people that actually have some policy ideas to try to fix it? Give us a few things to cut through the noise we're going to hear in the coming years to get to what we actually need to be paying attention to. It's like, Oh, that person's just throwing buzzwords at me, or this candidate actually knows what they're talking about and cares about this issue.
0: Yeah, um, you know, I think both parties tend to retreat out, uh, to high level sort of buzzwords on this issue, and it it can be uh, it, can, it can make the discourse worse. Um, but the the first and and most fundamental thing for people to understand, is that it's a relatively small number of people who commit most of the serious violence. In any given city, you're talking about a half a percent of your population that's responsible for more than 50% of your violence. And so uh, politicians that, that understand that, right, understand the way that crime concentrates among individuals and concentrates among micro locations. Again, you're talking about less than 5% of one block street segments in a given city are responsible for more than 50% of all crime, not just violence and so understanding the concentration is true there Um, the other thing is that the the solutions that work best are when there are combinations of sort of official structures be it law enforcement corrections prosecutors and the community social services and so on and so forth anyone who relies too heavily on one of those two sides or talks exclusively about one to the exclusion of the other either isn't serious about the issue is is just an ideologue or doesn't understand the actual technical literature on this. Um, you can you can do a lot with law enforcement, you can do a lot with social services, but uh, for, for the social service example, there is not a single instance of citywide crime reduction in the United States in which a, an effort was done to the exclusion of law enforcement. That's not to say that law enforcement is itself the answer, but the partnership between the two, the sort of soft with the hard, is where this stuff works best.
1: And Joshua Crawford joins. And the reason that is, is because when you get past the policy and the buzzwords and all that, this is a human problem. Mm -hmm. How much of this is trying to balance still seeing even the worst of the worst of the offenders as humans, making sure we see the police as humans, Mm -hmm. seeing these communities as humans, not just demographic blocks or voter blocks or whatever you want to call it. I see when these things go bad in the discussion and policy realm is when we don't do that and we dehumanize any of those groups. How important is it to keep everybody involved here as a human being first and foremost? Yeah, absolutely. And at
0: the risk of sounding like one of your economist guests, uh, people respond to incentives, right? And sometimes people respond better to negative stimuli. Sometimes people respond better to positive stimuli, uh, it, it, but again, when it's a combination of the two, you tend to get the best results. And so the strategies that work best leverage both of those things, uh, and, and try to get folks not only to not commit, uh, the, the crimes and not stay on a negative life course, but actually on to a positive life course. And that is far easier to do. And they are far more successful when they take the sort of two track path.
1: Yeah. Which brings us right back where we started is, you know, stable home lives and employment. That's the, that's the path to happiness for everybody, whether, you know, that's why we talk about college graduates. Well, you've got an education, you can have a stable life and employment. And it just boggles my mind that we're like, look, we got to have barriers for the, for the folks that are really struggling, whether it's criminal record laws or mental health laws or whatever, they got to have stable health and they got to have a employment path. That's the, that's the trick to all this because when people don't have meaningful employment, meaningful lives, they turn to bad things. Like it's, it's, It's so simple yet we really seem to drop the ball on it. It just amazes me. Does it still amaze you? Yeah. James Q. Wilson, who was sort
0: of like the guy right of center on these issues for, for decades um, in his, his book, thinking about crime talks about um, basically the three categories of people that exist Uh, on the one uh, end of the spectrum. There are the people that we can do absolutely nothing to dissuade from committing criminal offenses uh either because of interpersonal reasons or lack of or however you want to attribute it they are determined to do whatever it is they are going to do on the other end of the spectrum because of internal social controls and and morality and things like that there's nothing you could do to push them to commit a violent offense you could make all of these things legal and they'd still choose not to participate but the great swath in the middle are people who are watching seeing how we respond to things seeing how society responds to things and uh and will act accordingly. And so, again, creating all of your structures so that you punish the wrongdoer, you reintegrate the person who has done the wrong into civil society, and we can all sort of progress, right? You, you don't let misbehavior go unpunished, but you don't perpetually punish, uh, again, ex- except in the cases which you intend to perpetually punish, right? Like there's a, a role for sort of life sentences or something like that, right? But unless you're saying, we're giving this person a life sentence, 95 plus percent of all inmates will be released at some point. Making sure those people don't commit more crimes when they come out is good for everybody. It's good for public safety. It's good for, for offenders. It's good for victims. It's good for all of us.
1: Yeah, I think that's the key. You just said it right there. It's good for everybody. It's good for society. The, the more freedom and opportunity you give to the most people is the best for everybody. And that's something we tend to lose track of when we start talking about these sorts of things. Joshua Crawford, I always appreciate the high-level conversations we always get out of you, my friend. Uh, You're down there in the great state of Georgia working on things now, although you're still based out of Kentucky. That's a commute. Uh, thank God for technology, right? Let folks know how they can keep up with you, what you have going on, the work you're doing and how they can follow you until we get you back on Hertel again, my friend.
0: Yeah. So all my stuff will be on, on, uh, the Georgia center for opportunities website. That's for opportunity.org. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram. It's JCrawford502. 502. That is really the social media platform that I use, interact with folks, continue these conversations there.
1: Yes, sir. I always appreciate it. Great conversation. We'll do it again real soon. I promise. I love talking to you about these items. Thank you, sir. Joshua Crawford. Appreciate the time. Thank you. Yes, sir.